So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to today's episode of Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. This is our 23rd show, and I am enjoying to help spread the word that joining clinical trials is a critical step to accelerating myeloma research to find a cure. Those that we've interviewed are diligent and brilliant, and if we help support their efforts by raising our hand to help find better therapies, we can continue to extend life and help to find a cure. Now, if you'd like to receive a weekly email about the past and upcoming interviews, subscribe to our Inpatient Minute newsletter on the homepage or follow us there on Facebook or Twitter. And please share these interviews with your myeloma friends. And we have a new site called myelomacrowd.org. That is the first comprehensive site for myeloma. And we invite you to share what you've learned during your myeloma journey and add to this site by contributing articles and ideas. On the homepage, you can click Become a Contributor to see the many options you have of helping other myeloma patients. This site is dedicated to finding all the good being done in myeloma from all sources all over the world and putting links for this important information into a single place. We're keeping a calendar of all myeloma events, a directory of myeloma specialists, the latest news and links to all the myeloma news sources, highlighting myeloma clinical trials, and helping you find patient support groups. Now, we are very privileged today to have with us Dr. Jens Lohr of the Broad Institute and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So, welcome, Dr. Lohr, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, let me give an introduction for you so people have a little bit of background. Dr. Lohr is a physician scientist who is board certified in internal medicine and medical oncology. He obtained his medical degree and PhD from Rupert Karls University in Heidelberg, Germany, and followed by his postdoctoral research training at UCSF in California. After his residency in internal medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, he completed his fellowship in the combined Dana-Farber Partners Cancer Care Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program in Boston. As an instructor in medicine, Dr. Lohr provides care to patients with blood cancers at Dana-Farber, and he is leading a research effort on the genomics of myeloma together with Dr. Todd Golubet at the Eli and Edith L. Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. This effort is focusing on the genetic heterogeneity of multiple myeloma, which we will talk about today, and is supported by the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation and the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium. So welcome, Dr. Laura. Thank you very much. We're very fortunate to have you. So maybe you'd like to start with giving us an overview of the work of the Broad Institute and what, what your work focuses on. Yes, definitely. So the, the Broad Institute is, is quite a unique place. So it's a scientific institute which, as you mentioned, is affiliated with the MIT and Harvard. And I, I would say the general difference of the Broad Institute when you compare it to other academic institutions is that it takes on scientific challenges that are sometimes difficult to address in the academic setting. 
And um, how do we do this? Um, so essentially, the um, scientific projects are typically very multidisciplinary and extremely collaborative. And most of the projects, for example, the projects that we are going to talk about today, use um, modern technology that um, for an individual lab would be um, probably sometimes too expensive to afford. And um, there are two major structural umbrellas um, for those scientific efforts. Um, and one of them are programs. And I am, for example, part of the cancer program that is um, led by Todd Golub. And then there are platforms. And... Um, for example, there are, um, are another. Uh, there is a number of other disease-focused programs, like the cancer program, and there's a lot of platforms which provide technology um, that otherwise um, couldn't be used because it's simply too expensive. So, um, the, uh, and I think the, the myeloma project um, that we have conducted is a prime example of that. So, the the underlying rationale for this project was to find out which genetic defects really cause and drive multiple, myelo uh, multiple myeloma. And we wanted to do this as comprehensively as possible, and um, because we need to know what's broken before we can fix something, um, we wanted to comprehensively um, get um, the DNA sequence of, uh, in the end, more than 200 um, of the samples from 200, uh, more than 200 myeloma patients. And um, what we um, did is basically, together with the MMRC and the MMRF, we got um, the samples from more than 200 patients and subjected them to whole genome sequencing, to whole exome sequencing, and we also did um, copy number arrays on them. And then we integrated all of this information and tried to find out what really causes and what really drives myeloma. And in order to do this, we uh, worked together with uh, one of the platforms, the um, genome analysis platform and the genome platform, uh, which basically provided us with the power to sequence all those samples. And then the genome analysis platform, um, which has a very strong computational focus, provided us with the resources to um, process this huge amount of data. And then in the wet lab, we performed the experiments um, to um, basically test hypotheses that we generated from the data that we got from the sequencing. And I think that this project is really the blueprint for many other projects that are conducted in a similar way at the broad. So what you do is you bring together a, a group of people and then you use the best resources of those platforms and of those individual disease groups to tackle a certain problem. And just to um, mention what other platforms and what other disease-focused programs there are at the Broad. So, for example, there is a um, there is a therapeutics program where we manufacture our own drugs that then can be tested um, for a certain question. So it's, it's it's very similar to what pharmaceutical companies do, um, but we don't have any pressure to. Um, basically um, ask a specific question, but we can actually go in whatever direction um, our research takes us. And then there's a number of different um, disease um, centers. For example, there is, um, there is the Stanley Center for Psychiatric Research, and there is an infectious disease program. So that's essentially the basic idea of the Broad Institute, is to ask scientific questions that cannot be addressed in a traditional academic lab 
And in the cancer program in particular, um, we are always interested in interesting biology, but our main pursuit is really identifying new treatments for our patients. Well, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and when is, and when yeah. you and when you say it's too expensive to do something like this in an academic center, where does the Broad Institute get their funding? I know that MMRF was very instrumental in helping to fund this project that we're going to talk about today. And I want to commend them for the amazing work that they do. Um, but overall, in the Broad Institute, for programs like this, um, where does the funding come from? And then how could we maybe replicate what you're doing to... Yeah. Right. So, so actually, in, in this, as you mentioned, in this, for this particular uh, um, program, that was actually the MMRF. So this is basically, um, um, and that has been instrumental. So the MMRF provided all the funding for the study. And the MMRC, which is the consortium of many myeloma centers, they provided um, the samples for the study. So none of that would have been possible without that. And that, again, is also the blueprint for many of the other projects. So um, there is a lot of um, NIH-based um, um, research going on, but for projects of this scale, we are actually very dependent on either philanthropic money or on money from foundations who basically um, want to make a project like this happen. So I would say it's, it's a mixture of, of um, money from foundations, um, philanthropic money, but also NIH-funded research. But for those kinds of research um, of that scale, um, I think the philanthropic money and um, the money from, from disease foundations um, is the most important, actually. All right. Well, great. Well, we're very appreciative for all that the MMRF does and for people who support them. So let's, let's talk about, a little bit about the goal of this study, because this was, I didn't mention yet, but this was research that was just published in Cancer Cell, and I saw it really everywhere, that it was a really important discovery. And so we've been talking a lot on this series about personalized medicine and getting really excited about potentially being able to treat not necessarily even like a localized cancer, like a liver cancer or a myeloma cancer in the blood, but being able to target um, genetically. Mm -hmm. And that's an exciting promise. So can you tell us what your overall objective of treating myeloma in a gene-specific way was for the study or what you were trying to determine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you have, I'm sure you have heard many times um, on your program that, that traditional chemotherapy, and, and you know for yourself, that traditional chemotherapy is very nonspecific uh, in terms of treatment. So, so what it does most of the time is really that cells are inhibited or killed um, based on the fact that they divide faster than normal cells. And as you can imagine, that's a very nonspecific way of killing or inhibiting tumor or myeloma cells um, because there's other cells in the body which also divide very fast. So as an example, hair, follicles, intestine, blood cells, and so on. So if basically this is your only way of um, specificity, of achieving specificity, you will also get a lot of side effects because you're also hitting the tissues that divide fast uh, in the body naturally. So the promise of targeted therapy is that you know exactly the vulnerability of a particular cell. So if one tumor cell or one myeloma cell has a specific mutation, you know for a fact that that mutation is not in any of the normal cells. So if there is a way to target this particular mutation, one would expect 
that this is a favor that, that results in a very favorable side effect profile. So you would expect, in principle, that when you hit this particular mutation, you only hit the myeloma cell, but you do not hit any of the normal cells. So that is the, the underlying principle, so that you get less toxicity um, when you have a targeted therapy. And um, the other conceptual advantage of highly specific therapy is that because it is so specific, you may also be able to administer a much higher dose, and that may make the therapy more efficacious. So all of that always obviously has to be proven in a clinical trial, but the, the concept of highly targeted um, therapy is that you have less side effects and greater uh, efficacy. And let's talk about maybe for a minute where you started with the data. Like where did you find the data and what patient samples were you using and start with where you began. Right. So essentially the, 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 the general idea of the study was um, to really provide a resource to researchers about what's going on in myeloma. And we wanted to be as comprehensive as possible. So we wanted to identify the genetic basis of what drives myeloma. And by drive, I mean, first of all, what initiates myeloma? So why do you get it in the first place? And then second, why is it aggressive? And why does it become more aggressive over time? And then also, what is the genetic basis for drug resistance? Why does it happen that when you give a drug, at some point, suddenly the drug doesn't work anymore? So those were all the underlying questions, and um, as I mentioned earlier, before you can tackle a problem, before you fix it, you need to identify the problem. We wanted to get as many patient samples as possible and just define what's broken. And so um, the, the MMRC actually has collected um, over many years many samples um, um, for purposes like this. So um, we basically teamed up with them and said, okay, can we actually um, take those samples and can we define as comprehensively as possible genetically what is defective in myeloma cells? And so um, we did whole genome sequencing, we did whole exome sequencing, um, we also did um, uh, certain copy number studies, and then um, our partners at uh, Tegen and Phoenix, they also did RNA sequencing. So we tried to be really comprehensive um, about finding out what's broken in the myeloma cells and then provide a resource um, to the community um, um, about those defects. So, and can I ask a question? Can you explain sure. the difference between whole genome sequencing and whole exome sequencing and the different types? Because we've been talking a lot about different testing, and I've been really encouraging patients to have tests like this run. Well, maybe not the whole genome sequencing because that's only happening in clinical trials, but knowing as much about their myeloma biology as they possibly can. Yes. So, so absolutely. So the, the difference between whole genome and whole exome sequencing is actually that um, the, the whole genome basically that is present in each of our cells, which is basically one very long um, DNA strand. I mean, it's basically partitioned in certain chromosomes, but it's the, the code is essentially 3 billion what we call bases long. So it's, it's a very simple code. It only essentially consists of four letters, A, C, T, and G, 
but there are three billion of them. So you can essentially just read this as a series of A, C, T's, and G's. So if you want to identify the entire genome um, in a tumor, then you will have to read all those three billion base pairs. But it turns out that we only have quite a limited number of genes. So this is about only um, 2% of them. Um, and when you want to sequence only all genes, there is a trick that you can use to pull out only the genes. And then you're down to 30 million of those um, coding base pairs. So it's the difference is between sequencing the entire genome and only the genome that codes for genes. And um, that is a lot faster. Um, it's a lot cheaper. And you can also get um, information that is um, deeper in certain ways. So in, in general, there is nothing that you couldn't do with whole genome sequencing as well, but it comes down to uh, a price issue. So whole genome sequencing, because you have to get more than 20 times more um, sequencing data, it's also much more expensive, as you can imagine. But just as a, so from a, from a clinical standpoint, um, I can't tell you anything about the pricing, but from a um, research standpoint, so when we give a sample to, um, when we sequence a sample, just to give you um, a, a ballpark idea, so um, sequencing an entire exome is less than um, $1,000, and um, sequencing an entire genome these days is less than $10,000. So again, obviously, this is not; those are not then um, certified tests that you can use like this in the clinic because there goes more into this. But from a research perspective, that's about the difference. And will this whole maybe exome test be available at some point in the clinic? Yes, it's actually so at the Dana-Farber and also um, at the Broad, and I believe also at the Mad Hospital, there's basically um, um, exactly that is being instituted right now to make this clinically available. That, that is basically just being started, but um, that I think within two years' times or so, that will be offered routinely in a clear, certified way so that you can actually get um, not whole genome because that I think is still way too expensive, but that whole exome sequencing will be performed upfront as soon as you step foot into the clinic. And do you believe it gives you everything you would need to know? That, that's the question. I mean, there's <laughs> never everything that we need to know. So it's, I, I, I think it will, give us, it will give us a great deal. But I think there's also going to be a lag period between basically identifying lots of mutations and then knowing what to do with them. Because once you have identified certain mutations and you see that mutations um, occur in a lot of different patients, then it's actually a big step to then find a therapy against it. So you will have to first um, functionally find out what those genes do. Is that a mutation that is just a passenger? Or is that a mutation that actually drives the myeloma? And that will still be nitty-gritty work uh, in the wet lab. And finding out about this, you have to see uh, in cell lines and then in mice what those mutations do. And once you know that a mutation actually plays a functional role and that it drives myeloma, then as a next step, then you have to find a treatment for it. Mm -hmm. So... I, I think getting the genetic information, that will happen routinely in the clinic, probably within the next two years, maybe even within the year at major centers. 
but knowing what exactly to do with this information, I think this will take a much longer time. Mm-hmm. Now I have a question. Is this data that was provided by the MMRC part of the COMPASS study? It's not, no. Or, so the COMPASS oh, study separate. is... That's separate, yeah. So the, the COMPASS study is, is led by, by Tijan, as I was pointing out, uh, in Phoenix, and that is a, that is a prospective study. So th- this is exactly um, what you mentioned, so that when a patient um, starts his treatment, that he gets, um, that he gets the genomic information um, performed before he um, starts the treatment. And then after treatment, at I don't know exactly how many time points, I think there's actually multiple time points, but at least at um, one other time point after the patient starts treatment, um, then you perform the same test again, and then you see actually how the genomics change in the patient. So do certain mutations go away with treatment? Do you see other mutations that um, suddenly arise that haven't been there before? So those are all questions that can be answered in a, in a prospective way. And I think the goal of the COMPASS study uh, is somewhere around 1,000 patients. So I think we will, because it's all prospective and because we get the genomic information before and after treatment, I think we will learn a great deal from this. Well, I advocate every patient, whether they're in the study, which would be a good idea or not, is to know these biomarkers because once you start treatment, that information is lost. And I think it contains exceptionally valuable information. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, 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 definitely, it's definitely, even though we don't know yet what to do with most of those mutations, um, the, it, it will definitely, it will, there's some mutations for which we do already know, and it will definitely um, certainly give us information about which mutations are the most valuable ones that we should pursue. Because a, as you can imagine, um, for the ones that are really worth pursuing, there's also a lot of noise. So we'll get a lot of what we call passenger mutations, which really occur in, cell, in cells um, randomly, which really occur in, in many normal cells as well, but they don't really drive the myeloma. They are basically innocent bystanders, and we see them, but they introduce a lot of noise. So I think the more data we have, and particularly if you have data before and after treatment, that will actually help to define which mutations are really the true drivers, which mutations are the ones that are the most worthwhile therapeutic targets. Well, and that's what you were looking at in the study. So let's talk about what you found in your study. Yeah, so um, as I was saying, the first thing that we found was basically we wanted to make a list of the most um, most significant mutations and the most likely driver mutations. And we did this, and um, we got a very long list of drivers, and that basically we put out there in the community. And now basically these mutations can be um, validated in the wet lab. But one thing that was very interesting that we noticed is that we got a lot of true driver mutations that have already been described um, by us and others in myeloma or also in other cancers to be true oncogenes, true drivers of the disease. And so, for example, we had three genes that we focused on because we knew that they were true oncogenes, true cancer genes. And that was the KRAS um, cancer gene, the BRAF cancer gene, and the NRAS cancer gene. Um, and what we noticed is that we saw more than one of those in the same patient. 
and, and that is highly unusual because they are actually somewhat in the same biochemical pathway. So we would not have, um, we would not have necessarily expected that that happens. But we did see them in the same patient, and because of the um, analytical technology that we developed, we saw that those mutations in those genes are in the same patient, but they are not in the same cell. So um, in some of the patients, they were in completely different cells. And if you believe that the mutation, that one of those mutations is what drives the cancer, you would have to assume that you're actually dealing with two or more different cancers in the same patient. Hmm. I mean, these cancers are actually all myeloma still, but if they have completely different driver genes and therefore completely different vulnerabilities, from a clinical perspective, you kind of have to regard them as different diseases. And um, because we had um, such a wealth of genomic data, we could actually um, we could actually quantify this really well. So we could say that, for example, one cancer gene is in only 20% of the myeloma cells, and another cancer gene is in 100% of the myeloma cells. Hmm. And what does that mean? And so we have asked that question, and we tried to model this in vitro, and we said, okay, um, let's say that, for example, 50% of the cells in one myeloma patient have mutation A, and the other 50% in the same myeloma patient have mutation B. What does that mean exactly? And we used those three oncogenes, BRF, NRAS, and KRAS, because for BRF, we actually have a drug. So BRAF is an oncogene that is mutated in other cancers as well, and there's actually an FDA-approved um, inhibitor for BRAF um, that can be used. So we could actually test from a therapeutic perspective if we have 50% with a BRAF mutation, 50% of the cells with another mutation, and we give the inhibitor um, experimentally what happens. And what we found was actually very interesting. So as we would have expected, the cells that have the BRAF mutation they actually get killed with the BRF inhibitor, or at least they stop proliferating. Mm -hmm. But depending on what kind of mutation is in the other type of myeloma, either this, this other clone, what we call it, is not affected at all, or in the worst case scenario, it's actually stimulated by the drug. Oh, that's so, the problem. <laughs> And that's a problem, exactly. So if you say, okay, you don't have a distribution of 50% and 50%, but instead you have only 10% of the cells with um, a BRF mutation and 90% of the other cells, your net effect when you give this inhibitor may be that, yes, you kill the 10% of cells with the BRF mutation, but you stimulate the other 90%, so your net effect could be actually progression of the disease. And that's, okay, that's, that's obviously yeah. a little scary. Obviously problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I, and I know there are some clinical trials that are running right now for the BRAF mutation. So this this would mean that you really have to completely understand the person's biology, and then you would have to have a very expert myeloma specialist who would know what to tweak. Right. Yeah. And. So we'll have to we'll have to basically so all of this is um, all of this is essentially experimental data and we have to see how that pans out in the clinic. But um, we basically so one thing that we know for sure is that 
now, well, we, we, I shouldn't say we know for sure, but there's data at least now that at least the first part is actually correct, that um, if there is a patient with a BRF mutation, a myeloma patient with a BRF mutation, the drug actually seems to work. So we basically did all of this in vitro, but uh, by the end of last year, there was actually a study so far in a single myeloma patient um, by a German group, um, that study was conducted, um, a single myeloma patient who was apparently refractory to all standard treatments, who had a BRAF mutation, and they gave this BRAF inhibitor, which, as I said, is not approved yet for the treatment of myeloma, but it's approved for other cancers. And apparently, um, this patient had a dramatic response um, with reduction of disease, with reduction of immunoglobulins, with reduction um, of plasmocytomas by imaging. And they, at least what they wrote in the paper, I think they treated him for um, eight cycles, and after that the patient was still in remission. So that, at least the first part is true, that if you have this particular mutation, apparently in myeloma you also get a response. And the second part now that has to be investigated, if this particular mutation is not in every single cell, but only in a small percentage of the myeloma cells, if you give the drug then, what really happens then? And what's the name of this drug, and in what cancers is it used? Yeah, it's called remurafenib, and it is used in melanoma. And there it's been, um, that has been published um, in the New England Journal paper, and um, melanoma is, is a really tough disease to treat if it um, is disseminated, and they saw massive responses. So this, I think, the, the duration between the, the study to actual approval was less than two years because it had such dramatic responses. And we are now actually at the, at the Mass General Um, There already is a trial open um, using BRAF inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Um, That's actually a study that includes also other cancers with this particular BRAF mutation, but it also includes myeloma. And we are uh, initiating now a new study um, where we combine a BRAF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor for patients with multiple myeloma. And maybe you can talk about the MEK inhibitor and the MEK gene, what that does for a minute. So, so um, it's been known for quite some time that um, the, the MEP kinase pathway, which MEC is a part of, is actually activated in myeloma, uh, regardless of whether there are any mutations in any of those genes or not. Um, and um, MEC inhibitors have been used in clinical trials. And in melanoma, what um, has been very interesting is that when you give Um, the BRAF inhibitor in melanoma, you get those dramatic responses, but you also get side effects with it. And that's mostly skin toxicity. So you can actually even um, cause um, skin cancer with this drug. And what's been found in melanoma is that when you give a MEK inhibitor in addition to the BRAF inhibitor, you can actually prevent this to a large degree. Um, Which is also surprising because um, the BRAF inhibitor and the MEK inhibitor um, are targeting the same pathway. So you wouldn't necessarily expect that, but there's actually good reason why this may work. So, um, and this is therefore a very attractive combination, um, at least theoretically, in multiple myeloma, because 
um, in patients with a BRF um, mutation, if you could give a BRF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor as a combination, you would not only likely increase the efficacy, but you would also decrease those skin side effects. Hmm. So um, I think that at least for patients who have one of those BRF mutations, a combination of a BRF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor um, is, is very interesting, and that's why we are um, writing uh, this clinical trial. And the MEK inhibitor um, alone is being um, studied in clinical trials, and I don't know exactly where those clinical trials stand. I think where you have people on your program who are much more familiar with those trials and where they stand right now. And is that MEK inhibitor a driver gene too, or is it just an activated gene? So from, from our data, we would say it's, it's basically the pathways activated, and we find a few mutations there, um, but they weren't really significant in a statistical fashion. So um, the BRF mutations we found to be statistically significant, but the MEK mutations we did not find to be. So it's, it's very well possible um, that those mutations do something, but um, we didn't find them at a high enough frequency to really say statistically rigorously, yes, that is clearly a driver gene. So uh, I would say that um, the pathway is activated, but only in few cases we have um, mutations in those genes which may actually activate this pathway. And going backwards just a little bit, can you narrow down how, how, how did you narrow the number of genes you studied as targets? Can you explain right, so how you did that? Yeah, from a, from a, from a sequencing perspective, um, um, we didn't have to narrow them down because we were just sequencing all of them. So mm. that basically, um, that was nice because we did whole exome or whole genome sequencing. So for either one of those techniques, we were basically looking at all genes um, in the human genome. From, from a wet lab perspective, um, um, when we picked genes to, to go after and then try to model this um, scenario of, of myeloma heterogeneity, basically th those were practical reasons because we wanted to provide a proof of concept that this heterogeneity um, is actually very relevant from a therapeutic standpoint. And therefore, we picked um, genes of which we knew that they were um, really cancer drivers. And um, we picked this one gene, the BRF gene, for which we actually had a drug. So we could actually model this in vitro, mix mm. different cell lines as a, as a, as a model for different um, subclones, and then give this drug and see what happens. And, and that's when we saw that um, when we did this, that we inhibit one clone, but we are actually increasing and boosting the other clone. And so picking those were really just um, practical reasons because we had all the tools available to, to provide that proof of concept. Okay, well, I'm glad you're being thorough. <laughs> now, I have a question. Can you kind of explain what the phrase clonal heterogeneity means in myeloma? Yes. So um, the, the, the textbook knowledge of, of cancer uh, is really that it's a clonal disease. And what that means is that all cancer cells are supposed to be identical. And um, from, a, from a genetic standpoint and from all other standpoints. So in, in principle, the textbook knowledge is that when you look at cancer and you look at the genome, every single cancer cell is identical. And our work and also the work of others show that this is really not the case. 
but that um, the individual cells in the same myeloma patients, in the same myeloma, may actually be very different. And um, that, that's uh, what I meant by, by saying that you can actually find more than one type um, of myeloma in most patients. And um, so when we say clonal, what that means is that a particular mutation or really any genetic defect is in every single cell in the body uh, or in every single cell, uh, in every single myeloma cell in a particular patient. So if you, you find a certain mutation or another genetic defect in every single cell, then we would say it's clonal. And when you find a certain mutation or genetic defect only in a certain percentage of the myeloma cells in the same patient, for example, only in 10% or in 20% of all the myeloma cells, then we call it subclonal. And you can imagine now that you can have 10% of the myeloma cells in a given patient um, with one mutation, you have another 10% with another mutation, yet another 10% with another mutation. So all of these we would call subclones, and that's basically what it means, subclonal heterogeneity. So it means that um, not all the cells are the same in the patient, and you can define percentages of the cells with given mutations in the same patients. And then you can basically regard those subclones individually. And that might be why one single drug is not going to ever cut it, maybe in myeloma. Exactly. And then you could imagine that one single drug only kills one subclone and 10% of those, but there are two other subclones which basically comprise 10% each, and the drug doesn't touch those at all. And, and are there other cancers that are similar to this, or is this really unique in this type of cancer? So it's actually, there, there are other cancers that are similar, but um, what we did, and those are all studies that are being um, done in other cancers as we speak. So I think it, it'll take another two or three years before we have um, a landscape across cancers and can compare them in terms of this um, subclonal heterogeneity. But what we did for our study, we um, at least um, compared um, this to one other cancer, to um, ovarian cancer. And one thing that we found very interesting is that in ovarian cancer, we found that there are some patients for which we could not detect any subclones. So um, at least in some, of patients, uh, in some patients with ovarian cancer, it really seems like everything is clonal. So all cells look the same, and at least um, considering our detection threshold, um, the mutations seem to be in all cells. So one would assume that in those patients, um, it may be easier to cure a cancer um, because either you, you have a successful drug or you don't. But it's not like um, there are some, there's a small percentage of cells that looks different from the other cells. And interestingly, we did not find that in myeloma. So in myeloma, pretty much all patients have subclones. And that may have to do with the fact that, um, that myeloma basically evolves over a long period of time. So it starts out with, with MGAS, um, and then there is a progression to smoldering myeloma um, before it becomes clinically active myeloma. And I think over that evolution of time, 
um, you get basically this subclonal heterogeneity. So I think all cancers are um, similar in a way that in the end there will be a lot of heterogeneity, but there are definitely, or there seem to be at least some cancers where you have some patients where this heterogeneity is actually not very extensive at all. And to kind of go into a little more depth about that, when you studied the patients, were you looking at newly diagnosed patients or previously untreated patients or treated patients? And then, you know, you mentioned this at the beginning of our interview. You were saying that it evolves over time. It becomes more aggressive. So can you talk about that a little bit, about what you saw in maybe the different stages of patients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we basically, so one of the limitations of our study was that we did not have um, samples um, of the same patient before and after treatment. Um, so I, I think that, that would give you the most accurate data, and this is what the COMPASS study now is trying to achieve. Um, but basically half of the samples from patients that we had was from untreated, patients and the other half was from treated patients. And we basically compared um, the types of genes that we had in untreated and in treated patients and we compared um, this clonal heterogeneity and the, the subclonal um, composition that we had in untreated and treated patients. And what we did find is that our most prominent driver genes so um, genes like the BRAF, the KRAS, and the NRAS genes, and other genes um, that um, are known to be cancer drivers, um, and that we identified in, in our study to be um, likely highly significant cancer drivers, we saw that these actually are present at an increased subclonal fraction in treated patients. So what that means, for example, that if you have one of those cancer genes that when you look in untreated patients, it may be present in 10%, but then when you look in treated patients, on the average, it's present in 90% of the cells or in 100% of the cells. And these and are patients where it's come back? Or uh, obviously, I guess you couldn't test for it if it hadn't come back, right? So exactly. when it comes so, back, you're saying it comes back in greater force. And, and this is basically, that, that is the problem that, that we don't have um, um, samples from patients, from the same patient before and after treatment. So we basically um, have a group of um, half of our patients um, that we had samples from were before treatment, and the other half was after treatment, but they were different patients. So those were not the same patients. So what we could is just look at what is the frequency um, of the, of the group of patients um, that we had from before treatment and what mm -hmm. is the frequency of mutations of the group um, of patients that we had after treatment. And there we just saw statistically significant differences that, um, that basically those um, significant mutations that we identified um, overall increased in frequency. So when mm -hmm. we basically asked, um, for example, the BRAF mutation, in the 100 untreated patients or so that we had, um, what is the percentage of uh, myeloma cells in which they occur? Then we found maybe like, I'm just making up a number, we found 30%. And then when we looked at the treated patients, then we saw that the mutations occur in 100% of the myeloma cells. Hmm. So, and what we conclude from this is that those mutations that we have identified um, 
are basically being selected by by standard treatment. So that means that those are not only cancer drivers, but they also seem to be responsible for the resistance that develops over time because you may kill other subclones, but those are the clones that make it through. So in the end, even if they are in the beginning only in 10% of the cells, after treatment they seem to be in 100% of the cells, and that um, tells us that, yes, those are probably the cells that are most resistant to the standard treatment. Okay, and then, so what do you do with that? <laughs> so, and, and that is the, the big question, and, and I think that generates uh, a number of interesting questions. So, for example, the question is, when, let's, let's um, basically stick with this example of um, a BRAF mutation. So, when you detect a patient that has, um, who has a BRAF mutation in 10% of his myeloma cells, should you start treating him then? or should you start treating the patient once um, the mutation has progressed to 100%? And that is a question that is completely unresolved, and that may actually be, as we learn more, that may be a paradigm shift, because um, right now we do not treat patients um, at the MGA stage, and we do, not do, uh, we do not treat patients at the smoldering myeloma stage. Mm-hmm. So I think all of this um, study will raise a lot of questions about what the ideal time point is to start treating of a patient. And, and is, it, is it the right time point when the mutation is in only 10% of the myeloma cells? Or is it the right time point once the mutation has reached 100% of the myeloma cells? And that is something that um, basically will have to move along as we learn more about um, what happens to those mutations over time. So I think over the next... Um, five years or even decade, this will be um, one of the crucial questions that we have to figure out. Well, it's, it's really critical and it's really complicated. So when this paper first came out, I had been asking a lot of different people about different genetic mutations and um, it made me a little discouraged <laughs> to hear about, you know, maybe the potential BRAF treatment um, inhibitor that you talked about. So how do you overcome that? So, yeah, so I, I think it's actually um, the, the, the history over the last 10 years has kind of um, told us how we could overcome this. Um, so, for example, the, the, the big achievements that we have had over the last um, 5 to 10 years um, with the development of, of proteasome inhibitors, for example, bortezomib or the image drugs, um, lenalidomide, um, the complexity of the disease did not stop the progress and did not stop the efficacy of those drugs. And I think the big question is this whole complexity, the biological complexity of the disease, um, is it really relevant? So it, our, our studies, um, I think, demonstrate that it may be relevant in some cases, but it looks like the proteasome inhibitors and the image drugs are basically kind of like negligent about this complexity. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there is this complexity um, and that you have so many subclones doesn't mean that you have to target every single subclone. Mm. So it could be that a drug actually hits multiple subclones simultaneously with equal efficacy, and and, um, certainly the proteasome inhibitors and the image drugs seem to do that. Um, So I think the complexity that we see biologically 
doesn't mean that we have to target every single subclone individually, um, but there may be drugs which may basically hit the entire disease regardless of this um, genetic complexity. So, so that is one thing. And um, then the other thing is that um, the, the hope is that the more targeted therapies are actually a lot more specific. So you could give them uh, in combination and what you could do, you could maybe give them even subsequently. So if there is a certain subclone um, for, which you have a, um, for which you have a particular drug, you could try to hit this particular subclone, and then you, um, you perform genetics again. And if there's another subclone um, reoccurring, you um, take the next drug. So I, I think most of us actually believe that before we reach a cure, I think the more immediate goal is to turn myeloma into a chronic disease. So, and I, I'm sure um, people on your program have basically um, compared this to, to what's happening in, in HIV therapy, where the disease is not really cured, but it's basically turned into a um, chronic disease quite successfully. And I think this is, this is um, our more immediate goal in myeloma to turn this into a chronic disease. And that may mean that you have combinations of drugs um, and that you um, may have many different drugs in succession with a goal to eventually turn it into a chronic disease. Well, it sounds like that you just have to know what you're working with. Exactly. At some level. And by knowing that, so because it, it seems like with personalized medicine, there are three maybe different approaches. Some treatments target by translocation or by chromosome deletion, like 17. Like I've heard that bortezomib is important for people with deletion 17. And then you have this gene way of targeting therapies. And then you have maybe a more broad way of targeting things like CD38 with drugs like daratumumab and things like that. Exactly. So I guess you could talk about personalized medicine in a lot of different ways. Exactly. And I, and I think um, the basically going after every single individual subclone is, is certainly um, not the only answer. And, and, and I think what you are saying is exactly right. So there's, there's different ways to, to approach this. And um, drugs that basically target... If, if you think about it... Um, a plasma cell is is very different from most other cells in the body. So, and um, there are certain if you essentially eliminated all plasma cells in the body, um, that there's obviously certain 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 risks with that. But you can live with that. Um, so, and that does not have anything to do with cancer, right? So, if you have a therapy like you were saying, so for example. Um, um, CD138 or something that specifically targets plasma cells, you may actually be already in very good shape because um, you have eliminated all the plasma cells, but that's something that you can live with, but you would have cured the cancer. And that wouldn't be specific at all to any particular mutation or anything that has to do with cancer. What you're doing is really eliminating um, a, a population from the body um, that causes trouble. So I think um, there is a number of ways um, it can be targeted, and that would be personalized medicine too. So as you were pointing out, I think there's, there's many ways to tackle that. So in your research, uh, with this discovery, what do you do? Where do you go from here? 
So, um, that, well, I have a I have a very personal flavor about what what I think that that should be done. But I I think some of the things um, you already pointed out. So, um, as the sequencing is getting cheaper and as the sequencing is being um, employed into clinical routine, I, I think we need to learn a lot more about what happens. Um, we need to get more data about what defects cause myeloma. But then. More importantly, I think even what happens over time. So if we get um, if we get the genomic data before therapy, and not only once after therapy, but multiple times, I think we learn a great deal about what happens, and then it will inform us about what we can do about it. Um, my personal bias, and this is now what what I'm focusing my my own research on, is that sometimes it may be hard to get. Um, Samples for um, for um, multiple time points after treatment, um, because that usually uh, involves a bone marrow biopsy, which is associated with risk. So right now, um, what we are trying to do in the group is to do all of this genomic dia- diagnosis from blood. Mm. And what we have found, and other people have found this too, that. Um, myeloma cells are actually um, circulating in the blood and you can actually retrieve genomic information um, quite comprehensively from those circulating cells in the blood. And how they relate to what's happening in the bone and in the bone marrow and what we can learn from this, um, that remains to be seen. But I think that that is another interesting area um, of the future that you can make those genomic diagnoses um, from the blood of the patient. And that is obviously associated with much less risk and, and um, it can be done um, in, a, in an easier fashion. And pain. <laughs> I know most pain? patients, yeah, most patients hate the bone marrow biopsy, but they're willing to do them if it's going to give you key critical information. So, right. But blood is even, even better. Right. So in your opinion, what can patients do to accelerate your genetic work in myeloma to find new and better targets? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the most important things, uh, thing is really what you pointed out is enrolling into clinical trials. Um, and that doesn't have to mean, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's, there's a new drug being tested, but just basically um, obtaining the data in the context of a clinical trial um, We'll just learn, so even if we give standard therapy in the context of a clinical trial, um, and in a clinical trial that is um, um, linked to those genomic studies, I think we'll learn a great deal uh, about what's going on, and that will basically generate a lot of incentive to to, um, test new therapeutics and develop new um, therapies. So I I, I think... um, it's, it's always worth asking for patients if there is the opportunity to get um, um, those genomic analyses um, um, on the material. And I think over the next one or two years in many of the major centers, um, that is something that will happen. And I think enrolling in clinical trials and just inquiring about the opportunity to um, get this kind of genomic data, I think that will go a long way. Well, is the number of additional patients donating um, tissue samples better, or is, is you know can you do your study based on 200 like you did, or would it really be much much better if you had a thousand or two thousand or five thousand? 
So I think it'll it'll always it'll always get better. And there's actually um, we have done some modeling about um, um, what what you get. And it's it's I think it's a it's a it's it's a question of um, basically how far down you want to go in terms of the mutations that you want to identify. So for example, I think everything. Um, that occurs in 10% of patients or more, that I think we have identified. Mm-hmm. But um, mutations that um, occur in 5% of the patients or less, I think those we have not identified yet. So I think we'll, we'll always learn more because, because of this heterogeneity, I think we are statistically powered only to, um, to I would say, something uh, around 5%, but everything that is below this, we won't pick up and I think from, from more patients, we may actually then also pick up those, those um, mutations that occur in a much smaller um, population of patients. Mm. And I once at a patient conference, and the author of Emperor of All Maladies, Dr. I think it's Siddhartha, he was talking about breast cancer, and he kind of mentioned the same thing that's, that you were studying in myeloma, is that he found certain driver mutations, but he found so many variations. So I think the deeper that we go, is this um, whole, genome, whole genome exome test, or whole exome test, sorry, when you say it's going to become available in the clinic, is there a company that's working on it, or what's the progress of that? So this is, I think there's, there's also now companies um, that are offering that, and I think they're just basically going online. But it's mostly the the institutes themselves. So I know that that the um, that the Dana Farber is basically um, trying to institute this into clinical routine, and then also the Broad Institute is kind of offering that as a as a service. So um, I'm I'm not sure because this is all very new. But I'm, I I think the setup is in a way that, for example, other institutions can send the samples. To the Broad Institute, and then um, the sequencing is performed there, and then basically the results get being sent back. So all of this is very new and very much in flux. But um, over the next year or so, I think there's going to be um, a, a massive progress. Oh well, it's very exciting. Yes, oh yes, definitely is. Yeah, very exciting. Okay, well, I don't. I'm taking up all the time, but I want to open it up for caller questions. So if you have a question for Dr. Laura, please call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. Okay, um, we have our first caller. Go ahead. Hello? Your caller at 949-5572. Please go ahead. Great show today. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, can you hear me? Yep, we can. Yes. Yeah, All right, great. So the the the, the genetic um, tests or the genomic profiling was, was was of most interest to me. Specifically, if I would like to do that today, where could I go and do that? You mentioned Dana Farber, but um, I probably have to be a patient of Dana Farber. Is there something else, I, something else I could go and and get that done? That where, not only get it done, but but where it would be helpful to push forward the work being done in myeloma. Right. 
So, so I know because all of this is very new. So I, I know that basically the Broad Institute got the CLIA certification, so which basically means that um, they um, can actually um, provide that genetic profiling from clinical samples because you obviously have to um, uh, meet certain quality standards, um, which are way above what you need for research. And I know they just got this, but this is really a development of the um, of the last two or three months. So I don't even know if they are officially accepting, accepting samples yet. And I know of a couple of companies who are providing a very um, similar service, but I also don't know if this is really online yet. So what I can do is I can find out about this because this is all very much in development, and then maybe um, with Jenny post this on the website. Oh, sure. Okay. So I, I guess the, the goal is how can we gather and then combine more of the data, especially the... The you know the, the patients that have the less common uh, genetic subtypes, um, I, and I have one more follow-up question: um, If a patient's been through two bone marrow transplants, is relapsed within a year, um, is there is it possible to get into a clinical trial at that point, or is that do, do you fall outside of a you know what most clinical trials are looking for. Uh, not at all. Not at all. So, so there's definitely there's definitely and many clinical trials are actually designed specifically for that situation. So there's, I mean, it's, one has to take a, a very close look at the history about what's already um, what's already been given. But definitely, if there is a failure after after transplant, that does not preclude you from, from enrolling into clinical trials at all. And as I said, many of the clinical trials are actually designed for specifically that situation. Um, and um, about the, the first question that you had, um, what do we do to basically compile all the data, ideally in the whole world, um, that, has been, um, that has been generated, and then define the most, even, even those rarer subtypes, that, that is something that is definitely high, highly desirable, and um, there's efforts about this as well. But um, because those, those, um, um, just the size of the data is so large, it's just logist, uh, logistically a, a big challenge. Because as you, uh, as you can imagine, for example, if you have a whole genome um, that basically takes up space of, of um, several computer hard drives, and if you have many of those, uh, that alone you need a place to store them. But there is actually efforts going on about this. All right. Well, thank you for taking my call. Sure, my pleasure. Okay, and Dr. Laura, we are out of time, so we better close. But we so appreciate you joining us today, and we hope that you will continue your excellent research and care for myeloma patients. Um, we believe your discoveries will help find a cure for this disease, and we're so grateful for your amazing work. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next MPatient radio interview as we learn more about how we as patients can help drive to a cure for myeloma by joining clinical trials.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.